Greetings, everyone, this morning. Our scripture reading is in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Next weekend, we're looking forward to another wonderful year at family camp, a time of fellowship and encouragement, time to get to know each other and enjoy our Lord together as we study God's word and fellowship and relax and around our Savior. I encourage you to take part. There are some schedules left in the back. If we run out, let me know. Um, but we look forward to a time together, and uh, I encourage you all to take as much advantage of it as possible um, to gather together around our Savior. And also, I was also asked to mention that for those who are coming, if uh, the, uh, the food planners asked me if you would bake, and uh, guys, that doesn't leave you out. But if you want some desserts, um, we're asking everybody to bake and bring a dessert to pass, a dish to pass, cookies, whatever uh, suits you, please um, bring those, and, uh, and I can have someone sweet to eat, so. <laughs> okay, verse 8, we want to pick up here in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's read, start with verse 8. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful once again for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, for it's in Him we stand, it's in His righteousness. And Father, that last song we sang, Father, tremendous declaration, explanation, uh, even a sad story of the fact that Christ was condemned for us. So we celebrate and remember Him on the Lord's table. He was estranged from, from God. He was estranged from the Father and the Spirit, Father, in order to bear our condemnation and our sin on the cross. And Father, we rejoice in him today and we'll remember him. And Father, may we not only remember him and proclaim him, rejoice in him today, but Father, may the things we, things we proclaim, the things we learn, the things we study today find application in our lives, that we might rejoice in him every day. Father, may may Christ become a reality in everyday lives. May we be more than just Sunday going to church Christians, Father, but maybe those who, who come to understand what it means to have a relationship with you, to walk with you, to enjoy you, Father, as you help us navigate life. And so, Father, we pray today as we gather that our worship would be, would be worthy of your honor and praise. In fact, that our study today might be directed by your spirit so that we could learn the truths of God, truths that would help us to live lives that would honor you and bring great blessing to our lives. And so, Father, we pray that you would quiet our hearts, help us to be free from distraction, that we might be taught by your Spirit, thus saith the Lord. And, Father, for 
those around our nation that are gathering as well, Father, and I pray that your children would respond to your word in truth, that your word would go out in truth and in power, and that we would be in, enabled by, by your word and in your spirit to be bold in our witness. May our light shine. May we open our mouths boldly for the gospel, Father. And we pray even for those in our community and around us, Father, who need the Lord Jesus in their lives. Father, those who are struggling in various ways and those who are lost, whose, who, whose sins have not yet been forgiven, Father, who have not come to know the Savior as the one who died for them. Father, help us to, in love, reach out to them, uh, to, con to share with them. And Father, we traded that you would embolden us to that objective. May we be faithful to that great commission you called us to. And so, Father, we just pray today as we gather that you would be honored and glorified. Uh, open our understanding. Teach us the things we ought to learn today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Going back to Genesis chapter 26, where we're currently studying the life of Isaac. Genesis chapter 26. we left Isaac last time, we saw that he was experiencing a famine in the land, the land of promise, the land God had led Abraham to. And we see Isaac considering his options and facing this trial, this, this challenge of you know, feeding his family and his household. And God here asks him and tells him to stay in verse 2. He says, this is the land of promise. He goes on then to reaffirm to Isaac the promise he made to Abraham that God was going to make of this family a great nation, and he was going to bless them, and they were going to be a blessing, and so on. And, uh, and Isaac, in faith, stays. And that took a leap of faith, because that means he had to trust the Lord to provide for him at a time in which the severe famine was being experienced by the world. And so Isaac stayed. In verse, we find here in verse 6, Isaac dwelt in Gerar. He stayed there. And we pick it up today, we find out that uh, God blessed, blessed him bountifully for this decision of faith. So let's just read verse 12 and just read a few verses here where we left off last time. It says, Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants, and so the Philistines envied him. And so God blessed that decision of Isaac to stay. He provided for him, in fact, above and beyond and bountifully, as God began to fulfill the, the covenant he made with Abraham to make of him a great nation and a great people. And, and Isaac enjoyed that blessing because of his faith and trust in God to provide his needs. And, you know, when it began, it was quite a leap of faith. You know, where's this first meal going to come from? How are we going to provide? What about storing up for for the off-season, and so on. And yet God provides for him bountifully. And, we want, and, and when we consider this passage, I want to first pause and make a clarification, or at least help us to understand something here in regards to the Old Testament people of Israel and the New Testament people of the church. Because we look at this passage, and we understand, and we take from this for ourselves, that God brings bounty to his people. We have a God who loves to give. He gives us richly all things to enjoy. He gives us good things. And... And yet there are some who would take this passage and teach us that God would enrich every one of his children. And what we have to ask ourselves is that, is that Bible? Is that true today? Is that God's objective for, for us today? We call it the prosperity message to make us rich. Well, 
I mean, that'd be a good thing. Be kind of nice, but is it Bible? Well, let's talk about the, the biblical historical context. When we think of Israel, we recognize Israel was God's chosen people to represent him here on the earth. They're known as an earthly people. Their blessings are of the earth. They have an earthly heritage. They are the children of Abraham, united because they, they're the family of Abraham. They're, in Genesis 12:3, God promises them a physical land for their inheritance. They are a physical family and eventually will, be, will grow into, as you continue to read the scriptures, a, a physical nation here on this earth. Their promise is for a Messiah that's going to bring in an earthly kingdom reign on this earth. And so their anticipation is for a physical earthly kingdom of peace and prosperity. And that therefore their hope is for that king and his kingdom. Well, when the Lord Jesus came, he declared in Matthew 16, 18, he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church means assembly of called out ones. It's more than just a single local church. It is a family of believers made up of all those who are children of, the children of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus introduced a new entity he was going to use that from that time through this age in which we live to represent him on the earth. The church. The church has a heavenly heritage. We're children of Jesus Christ through faith in him. Romans 8, 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Our unity is our standing in Christ because we belong to him, and that's what unites the church. We're not a physical family. We're a spiritual family of believers in Christ. Therefore, we are a spiritual people with a heavenly orientation. Our blessings are spiritual and heavenly. Ephesians 1.3 says God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Our inheritance is in heaven. Our citizenship is, is of heaven, according to Philippians 3.20. And that's why the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It wasn't a physical building on a physical earth. Jesus is in heaven preparing a place for his own in heaven. We are citizens of heaven, and someday we're going to have an address there, and Jesus is in the process that earthly carpenter is... is preparing heavenly residences for his children, for us yet today. And so our anticipation is for a heavenly mansion. We are looking for the return of our Savior in the clouds to bring us to be with himself. And so there's a distinction between Israel, who is an earthly people, and the church who are a heavenly people. The church who is made up of both Jews and Gentiles who come to faith in Christ. And so the point is what we see here in Isaac is a bounty of physical blessings, and that's normal for is Israel. And what that pictures for us is that God has blessed us bountifully as well, but spiritually. God blesses us with spiritual blessings. And thus we can take this picture, but it does not mean that God wants to enrich every personal believer with, with personal prosperity. That's, the Bible does not teach that for the New Testament time in which we live. If that's the case... We'd have to ask ourselves, what happened to the apostles then? Where did they go wrong? Did they not have enough faith as prosperity preachers preach? Because they were pretty impoverished. And, and what about the martyrs throughout history? And some of the great men of God. It is quite obvious that even not only from the Bible, but from history, that God is not out in the business of making us all wealthy, as much as we might enjoy that. But instead, God has called us to suffer for Christ. That's what he called us to. Jesus, Jesus warned us that the path of the believer is in opposition and hardship. You know, he warned, he warned the believers in John 15. He says, they hated me, they're going to hate you, they're going to oppose you. 
we find it throughout the book of First Peter that much of the study, we just completed a study of First Peter on Wednesday nights, and it's a book about suffering, and much of the suffering has to do with living as a Christian, standing as a Christian, witnessing as a Christian, and, and experiencing opposition and criticism of the world for that life, for that lifestyle. Another thing this passage does teach us is that God will supply for his own and whatever he calls them to, doesn't it? God will supply. He may not enrich in us, but he will supply for us. We find that in the scriptures. In Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now, your needs might not be that brand new John Deere tractor with air conditioning, stereo, GPS, and autopilot. That might not really be a need, but God may give it to you because he does at times bless us with above and beyond things, that, th things to enjoy. Psalm 34.10 says, The lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. God promises to provide for us. But we're called to be a heavenly people to suffer hardship in this world for the cause of Christ. And the condition to enjoy God's blessings are much like Isaac's. Isaac, by faith, simply obeyed the Lord. He trusted the Lord with his future. And so you and I are to do the same. We trust the Lord for all the life's needs because our rest in reality does not come from our fat checkbook because as the world gets worse and worse, the checkbook's going to get slimmer and slimmer. But instead, our, our rest comes from a God who cares for us, God who, has, who loves us, who's provided for us. First Timothy 6.17 says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And God has given us richly, hasn't he? Because we just sang about his son. And he's made us rich in Christ. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That spiritual riches to, for you and I to be able to sit here today who have trusted Christ as Savior to have Christ in us. He wants to so help us through life that he dwells with us, he dwells in us to help us navigate life. <coughs> Excuse me. So how rich is it to know that one's sins are forgiven because Jesus paid it all. Acts 13, 38, it says, Through this man was preached the forgiveness of sins. And to know our sins are forgiven before a holy God so we can have the assurance of eternal life, that's true riches. We sit here wealthy this morning because, uh, because eternity is settled because of the complete payment that was made on the cross for our sins by our Lord Jesus Christ. That payment we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. And we can trust 1 John 5, 12, and 13, which says, He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God does not have life. And you can be a have or a have not. And if you're a have, you're rich. And the next verse says, These things I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you might know that you have eternal life. I can't think of a more wonderful thing to have settled in life than to know your sins are forgiven and that you're on your way to heaven. No worries about death and the afterlife and what you may face. But along with that, we have that assurance that God is with us in life as well. He will watch over us and he will guide us. You know, if anything, riches in the New Testament are seen as a curse in reality. We're told not to trust in them, not to pursue. The, the love of money is the root of all evil. In Luke chapter 12, 
Jesus spoke of a parable about someone who, you know, remember the guy that had a bumper crop and he built barns and he bumper crop and he built barns and he said, you know what, my checkbook's fat. Well, my barns are fat. He says, and I can sit back, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said to him, or in this parable, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then who will these things be which you have provided? So what if you've got a, a big portfolio? Who's gonna, it's going to be left for someone else. So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Now, that's not, God's not against a fat portfolio. If you happen to invest wisely and worked hard, God's not against that. He blesses us oftentimes. He rewards us for those things. But the idea here is, are we rich towards God? What if we, have, we, have we pursued those things in life at the expense of a knowledge of God and enjoyment of God? That's the point of the scriptures. God sees true riches when we're rich towards God, when we know him, when we enjoy him, and we allow him to direct us in life. And that's why Matthew 6 tells us not to worry about all those things, what we eat, what we're going to put on, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and God is going to add these things to you. That's the point. That's what we see in Isaac here in Genesis 26, a man who was willing to seek first the things of God. And God said, stay, he stayed. And he trusted God. And you know what? God added these things to him. Now, it seems like a simple story. The, the lesson's obvious, but it becomes challenging Monday through Friday, doesn't it? To really seek God first, to really entrust ourselves to him. Because there's times when Satan's going to challenge us in things that cause us to fret and fear and worry about our safety and security, like a famine. Are we going to trust ourselves to him? My mom, who was a, a godly lady, sometimes likes to listen to Christian talk radio, and there's some programs on that are, are like to focus on gloom and doom of what's going on in our nation. And if you look closely and behind the scenes, and there's a lot of bad stuff going on, and, the, and, it, and I, I'll call her, talk to her, and she just, she's just beside herself because the world is falling apart. What's going to happen? And we visited the other day, and Laura mentioned to me, reminded me to play that song we played here a few, a few weeks back about the fact that our God always wins. Our God always wins. We have to keep our um, eyes on the fact that our God's in control. He's, he is sovereign over our lives. He, is, he, he controls all that is going on, and we can trust him. That's where our trust needs to lie, and that's what it takes on the Monday through Friday decisions when our, when our fears present themselves, when our worries and concerns and anxieties come to bear, we have to do what Isaac says, okay. Simple faith, isn't it? Faith of a child, Jesus said, to trust him with our lives. Well, I think you see in Isaac a continued resp right response to the things around him in his walk with God. If we go on here in our account, we're going to hear, see in verses 15 through 22, the original uh, game of water wars, if you want to call it that. Verse 15, the man be, excuse me, now the Philippines had stopped up all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father, for the Philistines had stopped them up, had filled them up, after the death of Abraham. He called them by name, which his father had called them. 
Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, so he called its name Samah. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Then he went up from there to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him in the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants up for my servants Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there, called on the name of the Lord, and pitched his tent there, and Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzah and one of his friends, and he called the commander of his army, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent my, me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So he said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you, since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank and they rose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another, and Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him from peace. And it came to pass that same day that Isaac's servants came and told them about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water, and so on. It must have been well digging season or something, <laughs> wasn't it? They like to dig wells, you know? What do, they, what do they think about getting up in the morning? You know, some of us think about reading. Some of, us, some of us like to go kayaking first thing in the morning. We wake up thinking about our project. They woke up with a shovel in their hand. Let's go dig a well. It's a true water wars. What we see here in this passage is the first mention in the Bible of animosity from the Philistines, from the, from the land of Canaan, Canaanites towards the growing people of God. And we see some, some, some bad attitudes here towards God's people. God was blessing Abraham, excuse me, Isaac, because he trusted him. His family was growing. He had, he had bounty. And we see here, first of all, that, that they envied him. In the end of verse 14, they envied him. I'm not sure why they filled the wells. It's an expression of envy. It seems kind of strange when water is always uh, uh, sometimes a hard commodity to come by that anybody would put, put the dirt back in the well, but... Out of spite, hatred, resentment, whatever, they had envied them because God had so blessed them. We also see that kind of their rejection of them. And when the Bilmic said, go, leave us, go away. It's kind of like the atti world's attitude towards Christians today. We, they want to be rid of Christians, don't they? And maybe it's also because of some type of fear. Because he tells them, you're, you're much mightier than we. And so go away. And so there was some type of fear, maybe fear of, of Israel taking over the nation, but they rejected them, and they asked them to, you know, get away from us. And the fourth thing we see is hate. In verse 27, it's mentioned, when Isaac interpreted all this as, you hate us, why did you come make a covenant with us? You hate us. It seems to be very typical of, of the world's attitude towards God's people throughout history, doesn't it? Envy, fear, rejection, hate. And it's all simply because God had blessed them. They were just enjoying life, enjoying the Lord, enjoying God's goodness and his bounty. They, they really gave him no cause. But isn't that what Jesus says back in John 15, the chapter I mentioned? He says, they hated me without a cause. 
same attitude that put Jesus on the cross, simply for being right and doing right. And it's all because God had blessed them. You know, today, the world is fearful of Christians and their influence. You know, there's another account in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 6 mentions the completion of the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. And the whole time that project was going on, there was enemies that opposed them, tried to derail them and prevent them from building those walls. And it was a wonderful picture of God's people coming together for a project to, to honor God, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They worked together. They completed it. And it was a 52 days, I believe. They came together and finished this, these walls. It was an amazing feat. They worked together. They, they stood against the enemy together. Sometimes they worked with a shovel in one hand and a weapon in the other. You made me know the story. And yet the walls are completed. And, and, and this is what it says of them in, in um, Nehemiah chapter 6. It says, And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, and all the nations around us saw these things, that they were very disheartened or afraid in their, in their, in their own eyes, for they per perceived that this work was done by our God. And I don't know why, but there is exactly, but, the, but when a Christians are serving the Lord, when their life shines for Jesus Christ, there is this type of resentment and hatred and fear. Maybe it's because of the threat to their lifestyle. You know, it said, said of the Lord Jesus in John 1, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. And then in John 3 it says, this is the condemnation that light, Jesus, has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And it's maybe that's the reason that, they that these folks resented Isaac because the light of Jehovah was shining through the family and household of Isaac. His light was shining brightly. And that brings sometimes conviction because men love darkness. And one of the reasons they hate and resent and fear Christians is because Christians who stand for the truth can be a threat. Now, we'll have to admit, there are many times when Christians have given the world reasons to resent them, legitimate reasons. And in Peter... God reminds us that don't let that happen. Don't give them a legitimate reason. But if they happen to resent you, then you're blessed by God. And so the challenge to us as we consider this passage is, 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 is our light shining? So much that we're getting a response out of the world. Now, we hope our response is a response of, yeah, that's cool. I like it. I want to know more. Because they see the love of Jesus. And the in reality of his grace and his patience and his long-suffering in our lives. But some will reject because people like their independence. The thought of God of, of is, is repulsive to them because no one naturally likes to be told what to do. And that's one reason, by the way, that evolutionary thinking has become so popular. Because it gives life an explanation apart from a creator. Because if there's a creator, we're going to have to answer to him. And, he's, and he has a right to tell us how to live. The wonderful thing about our creator, his way to live is the best way for us to live. It brings the greatest blessing. But we don't like to be told what to do, kind of like our kids. You never heard that before. I don't want to be told what to do. And yet, God gives them parents because parents know that if they don't tell kids what to do, there are potential threats, harm. And, 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 and so it is with us here in life. Because sin is in, our, in the world and because we have an enemy who would devour, kill, steal, and destroy, 
God would protect us from those things. We need his guidance in life, his help, his wisdom, his direction through, the, through his word. And so that light shining through, the light of Jehovah, became obvious to these people, and they increasingly resented them because God was with them. And also as we continue, we, as we go through this, we recognize that Isaac's lifestyle may have brought conviction to them because Isaac extended grace in spite of their treatment of him. He extended grace. They kept, you know, you dig a well, they chase him away. Dig a well, they take it and chase him away. And what's interesting about Isaac is he didn't dig in his heels and, and fight for his rights, protect his turf. He recognized that a piece of dirt and a, and, a, and a well of water wasn't worth the conflict. And he had perfect right to stand up and he could have done battle and, and take, kept possession of these wells that Abraham had dug and that he had dug. He had a right to that. Why didn't he stand up for himself, we think? What kind of man is he? Oh, he's a man of God, a man of grace. They knew it wasn't worth it. I'm just going to get another well. And he willingly gave up what was rightfully his, the land, the water, because the conflict wasn't worth it. And that's a perspective we need to see, that conflict isn't worth it for the cause of Christ. That's the cross we're called to bear. That's the suffering we're called to. We read that in 1 Peter, in chapter 3, that if we, if we suffer... For the cause of Christ, we're blessed. Chapter 4 says this, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he's glorified. And Jesus mentioned that in the Sermon on the, Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely. Key word, falsely. Not deservedly, falsely. For my sake, that world's just going to do that. If we're shining as a light, if we're being a witness, some are going to respond this way. But, but Jesus said, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If you stand for the truth, live for the truth, and preach the truth, those who hate the truth are going to revile you. That's just the warning God gives us. That's just how it's going to happen. But when you do, we're blessed. Why? Because it's working. It's because they see Christ in you. That's why you rejoice. That somehow God took this sinner and managed to allow the light of Jesus to shine through his life to elicit a reaction out of somebody. Hallelujah, amen, it's working. It actually works what the Bible says. That Christ can be real in our lives. And we can fulfill Ephesians 5.11, which says, Have no fellowship with the fruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. And that which exposes them is the light of Jesus in our lives. First Peter 2 says this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. And if they don't recognize it while you're alive, someday when they stand before God, they're going to recognize that you simply were standing and living the truth. And, of course, the light of the world passage in Matthew 5 says that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which are in heaven. And so Isaac remained faithful to God, not only staying in Gerar, but re reflect, reflecting the nature of Jehovah, <coughs> the grace. He just trusted God. He didn't respond in the incorrect way. He kept the peace, did he not? Along the way, God 
helped him out. He reminded him of his promise in verse 24. God jumps in in the middle of all this and reminds Isaac, he says, remember, I've got you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you in this land. I've got this. You can trust me. You know, I wonder how tired they got of, you know, going from well to well to well. You know, I would have found a way to lose my shovel, I think. But, <laughs> but th along the way, God used them. And then, in verse 29, we find the politics going on where they come down to make a treaty. And I think the 29 is a typical political statement when they request this treaty. And he says, you know, we have not touched you. We have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. And I would say, oh, you a forked tongue to Abimelech. They had treated him hatefully and spitefully. He says, we've done nothing bad to you. Now, it's true. The half-truth is, well, they didn't attack them. They didn't touch them, but they were not kind to them. You know, and Isaac could have called him a liar and a fraud and a politician and whatever and sent him his way, but what did he do? He made him a feast. Hmm. Interesting, isn't it? That's something you normally do for those that hate you, oppose you, chase you away. Make them a feast. Grace prevailed. And that wonderful passage in Romans 12 about vengeance says this, Repay no one evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of men. That is, do the right thing. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, on your part, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Give place to wrath. What place is that? It is written... Vengeance is mine. God says, I will repay, says the Lord. See, people are going to answer to him for those ill treatments, especially of God's people. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Conviction. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's completely backwards, this mentality demonstrated here by Isaac, declared in the New Testament. But it is a redemptive mindset that God would have us to have. We're here for a purpose. We're here to influence people for Christ, to show them the love of Christ, to preach the gospel of Christ. You know, and, uh, and, uh, and you know, the last thing you're going to do is when you retaliate against somebody and take your shovel and hit them over the head because they're trying to take your well away, you know, once they get up off the ground, want to hand them a gospel tract. It just doesn't work that way, does it? God says overcome evil with good. Show them the love of Christ. Show them the forgiveness that is available through Christ. We're called to this. 1 Peter 2.21, that book on suffering once again, says, For to this you are called, because Christ suffered for us. He led the way. He was the example. He left an example that we should follow his steps. And he suffered undeservedly. And the Bible says he's like a sheep before a shear. He didn't open his mouth. He could have retaliated. He went willingly to the cross to rescue humanity. And that is the great objective that is going on in this world. We think the objective in this world is to be happy and be rich and get money and have fun. God says, there's one objective I'm concerned about. It cost me dearly. It cost me my son. And that's to rescue people. That's life. And God has called us to align ourselves with Jesus Christ to follow in his steps, to be willing and to endure those same type of rejections and hatreds and evils for the sake of proclaiming to them the love of Christ. And that's what we see in Isaac. And that's why I believe in, a, in verse 32, that same day after his treatment of his enemies, you know, feeding them and, and so on, keeping the peace, they discovered water once again. God continued to bless him along his way. You know, we celebrate today the Lord's table. It's a remembrance feast, isn't it? It's, it's helped us to remember, be reminded of the great love of our Savior. 
And yet we c but what a tremendous lesson today to see the example that we're to follow. If we want to remember Christ, it goes beyond, you know, the 10 minutes it takes every second Sunday that we choose to observe the Lord's table to remember him. This is just one aspect. This is just an official remembrance of him that we to do when we, are, when we gather together. If we want to truly honor God and remember him, proclaim him, then we do so in our lives. That's what it means to allow Jesus to live through us. Because he's the one who indwells us. The Bible says Christ who is our life. It is Christ who lives in us. We are to abide in him and he abides in us. We make our home together. And if that's the case, it'll be this kind of grace that will, that will extend itself through us to others around us so that they can see Christ in us so that we can elicit a reaction. Now, hopefully the reaction is good. People are going to want to know your God. Sometimes it may not be, but it's the price God calls us to pay as we serve him together. We may, as we celebrate the Lord's table, not only remember him, but desire to follow his steps. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for this example, a simple example in the life of Isaac. Father, it seems very uncluttered and simple, but Father, it seems obvious uh, the, the, the life, the blessing of Jehovah, of Jehovah God, of, your, of yourself that was exhibited in the life of Isaac. And Father, help us to realize as your church, especially as we celebrate our Lord, Lord today in this Lord's table, as we consider the price that was paid, the, the, the body that was broken under our sin, the blood that was spilt to pay the price of our sin. And Father, may we realize what a great price was paid, but it was paid for our salvation, but for the salvation of the world. And Father, as your children, you've called us to, to come alongside, to join the Lord Jesus in the pursuit of the rescue and salvation of mankind. And Father, may we be willing to suffer for his sake. And so Father, may he be glorified as we continue this morning. May you continue to draw our focus to him and increase our love for him as we remember the great price that was paid for us. In Jesus' name.